You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, we try to talk about it, and uh, in the process we, we do our best to trust that God, you know, meant for it to get to us the way that it did, for whatever reason he has. What a novel concept. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been watching a lot of videos and listening to some podcasts by various people, and you would really think that God made some mistakes that we need to fix for him. And I've got to say, that's got to be one of the more annoying things that we as Christians who say we honor God's word actually do to the word. So I, I think that, yeah, we try to stick with it where it is and, and hopefully we're doing a good job at that. I know yeah. that's what I, we intend to do. Yeah. Try, uh, try to, you know, look at the Bible on the Bible's terms and not ours. Yeah. Which I know that's just a wild concept. So, uh, but yeah, we're and we're still in Second Samuel twenty-two. We've got like a few more pages to go through, and I have been working and reworking these notes because, as I said, it's a chiasm inside of a chiasm, and then you've got a psalm in the middle of a narrative, and there's like all these little threads and. Uh, this is where I wish I could just, you know, do diagrams for everyone. And unfortunately, podcasts don't allow for that. If you're on YouTube, well, we didn't want to, you know, give you any kind of advantage that our podcast listeners didn't have. So, uh, <laughs> no, uh, basically, I just don't have my study set up yet. So also, that, also, get- <laughs> that also means I'm too lazy to edit in charts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, but... We uh, had actually left off in uh, verses 26 through uh, 31, I think is where I read through. I'm not certain, but we'll get there. It's, it's fine. And we were talking about how David has said that he's basically described for us what righteousness looks like and how God's righteousness works with people. And um, I'm just going to read those verses again, because if you're like me, you've slept since then maybe just a little bit. So it says, um, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. And with the purified, you deal purely. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You have you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For, you, for by you, I can run against a troop. By God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves me true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So um, that, that's where we're going to be looking. We already talked about how you know, David basically says that God interacts with people according to the way they are. That what, you know, the merciful, he's merciful. You know, if you want God to, to deal with you purely, you know, act purely, walk purely. So and we were talking about how this is not a suggestion that humanity controls God because humanity didn't set out the parameters that God said he's going to operate under. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this really is a statement of faith. This is a, a, something that's so counter 
to what was uh, known about other gods at that time, because other gods, you didn't have a standard that you could depend on. Right. And they, they had, you know, they operated on their whims. They did whatever they felt was right. There, there wasn't a standard of holiness. And I think sometimes there's this idea that holiness and justice are kind of like these, these mean elements of God that, that require a lot from humanity. And that's where the, the judgment and the wrath and the, you know, all the stuff that we don't like to hear about from God comes into play. And so we want to focus on the love, but we don't realize that the, these standards of holiness and justice are actually what allows us to draw near to God. That's what allows us to participate with Him and, and to do so with a certain level of confidence because. When God says, this is how I'm going to behave, now I have the stability and I don't have to worry about what if I accidentally do the wrong thing? What if I accidentally mess up? What if he's having a bad day or the barometric pressure is wrong? Those things aren't at play in the Bible's portrayal of God. And so, you know, this is really a good thing. This is, this is grace and mercy, even though so often it's presented as like I said, that wrath and damnation kind of view, it, it, it really is a mercy. And, you know, and I, I think if you're a parent, you understand that because, you know, when you have kids, one of the things that they need is consistency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, you, if they know that mom and dad are always going to behave a certain way or there's certain consequences for behaving a certain way, then they learn how to, to honor those boundaries in order to behave, you know, hopefully as a functioning member of society one day. And so we won't talk about all the things that go wrong with parenting, because I know I've made my share of mistakes. And if you're still raising your kids, you're going to make your share. But this is why God is the ultimate parent. And this is why he's the ultimate uh, God to, to show us how to behave. He is the example. He, he provides us the basis for how we should act. Now. Um, in, in there, I read, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to, to bring them low. Alter translates that humble as, as uh, lowly. So he says, in the sense that it is miserable, afflicted, and angered by superior forces. So these are people who are oppressed. And you know it's juxtaposed against haughty or exalted. Now, if you kind of um, listen to those words, pure, mercy, holy you kind of begin to to get this feel for another passage that most of us are very familiar with because it this passage talks about the pure the merciful the poor the pure in heart and so now we're talking about the beatitudes and it's really interesting to me because when you look at the the beatitudes uh you, you think of them as something completely new that Jesus is interjecting into the christian faith that this is not uh, something that's come before, but right. it, it, it really is. It, it is that deep continuation. It's that unchanging nature of God. And, you know, even in the Beatitudes, if you go beyond, everybody wants to go to Matthew 5, but if you go to Luke 6, you see that Luke 6 also offers that counterpoint where the, you know, you have the blessed who are the oppressed. They're the ones who have undergone this kind of suffering. But then he follows up with the woes. And so the rich, uh, woe to the rich, for they've received their consolation. Those woe to the full, because they're going to be hungry. And, you know, and he has a whole list there. And so we see that this, this, again, this consistency that doesn't 
just pertain to the God of the Old Testament or the God of the Hebrew scriptures is a consistency that flows throughout the entire Bible. And God makes this final determination for humanity's fate. I, you know, good or evil are created through self-determination in a way. Um, or sorry, good or evil that are created through self-determination in a way, through the choices we make, uh, they're going to be overturned at God's command. So even if we think we benefit from something in the moment, even if we think that it's it's something that serves us in the moment, God says, I'm still God and I get to overturn that. That's that's what he's he's putting out there for us. It's not that we control God. It's not that we can act apart from him or sometime, somehow um, create for ourselves something that is apart from his will. It's that in the end, he is still sovereign. So he allows us to make our choices. But at the end of the of time, he's either going to redeem or he's going to judge. And you get to pick. And that's not saying, again, not saying that humanity has control of God because God's the one that says, this is how the system works. And you Mm -hmm. cannot read Deuteronomy. And I, I really encourage people who go, oh my goodness, how in the world can you believe that God would let people make choices? Go through Deuteronomy, circle how many times you see God say, if. Mm -hmm. I mean, either he's lying to us in Deuteronomy, or he does allow us to make these choices. And so, right. you know, I, it, it's real simple. And people want to talk about the plain reading of the text. There you go. I, I don't have to offer any apology for that. Because in Deuteronomy 28, he says, if you do these things, if you follow me, if you honor me, if you love me, and you don't do the things that I said are offensive to me, then I'm going to bless you. And he's got a whole list of blessings there. And then he says, if you do these other things, you know, you follow after other gods, you kill, you steal, you do things that look like other gods. Now you're going to face my curses. Why? Because whenever you do these things, who are you going to take advantage of? You're going to take advantage of the the gullible. You're going to take advantage of the naive, the innocent, the people who actually are exhibiting the, the attributes that God encourages us to have in our life. And so God's going to take a stand because you you are not allowed to oppress that way and call yourself his. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we forget that sometimes saving someone who's being afflicted or oppressed requires basically oppressing the oppressor. And so, you know, you can't stop you you can't stop evil behavior by just I don't know, snapping it out of existence because now you're saying that your choices really don't matter and there's no consequence because if your choices do not have an impact on the reality around you, you really don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. So all of this has to come into play. And if we aren't looking at the the totality of human nature, of the, the God's nature as he's presented it, then what we're doing is we are trying to simplify things in a way that makes us feel comfortable. And unfortunately, when we try to make ourselves feel comfortable, we wind up missing the, the, the beauty and the depth and, and just the, the intimacy of God's relationship with his creation. Mm-hmm. And those are things we, we need to be celebrating, not trying to run from because they scare us. So anyway, uh, <laughs> and uh, in case you had, yes, this is why I affirm free will. So, verse 29, uh, for you are my lamp, O Lord. My, my God lightens my darkness, for by you I can run against uh, a 
troop and by my God, I can leap against a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Um, this is, this, there's, there's a level of specificity in my darkness. It's, it's not a generalized darkness. It, it's a, a very personalized. And uh, darkness in the, the Old Testament is usually used to denote kind of terror or dread. Uh, there's a distress, mourning. Uh, sin and evil are, are part of darkness and that symbolism there. Uh, confusion is another way that, dark, that darkness is used. Ignorance is another way darkness is used. And, you know, I think in this instance, uh, we're really looking at where I think the idea of perplexity, confusion, or ignorance is the best reading of the symbolism here. Because once darkness has been illuminated, David is emboldened. And so we have that, when you have those images placed in juxtaposition, then you can kind of see, okay, this one's explained. So now I know what the other one means. So this is the reason why you've got to read the entire passage. You can't just read one little verse. And um, Alter actually, you know, says that David's emboldened to charge his enemies' ramparts. And most translations agree that the verb to run is uh, from the um, Hebrew ru, which Radic actually thinks that the root word here in um, uh, in Hebrew is a ray, which very, very close in spelling. There's one little stroke difference in the spelling. Mm-hmm. Um, one means to run, one means to shatter or smash. I actually like Radix translation uh, very uh, for various reasons, but it's more dramatic and it's keeping with the tone and and the rhythm of the the psalm, which has been very dramatic up to this point. If it doesn't feel dramatic and you, you've been listening to the podcast, it's because we're pausing and and looking at it. But if you read this out loud and, and just go through it, don't you know? Don't stop and really. Um, analyze it like we're doing now just just read through it with some inflection and some uh some emotion behind it there there is drama here and so i i do like i said i like radic's uh translation just because i like the feel of it i don't know that he's right what we do have is we're talking about god preserving it we do have this um preservation where it is that simply just to run but you know it, it I can look at that and say, hey, that's a good possibility. And it does point me to that, that idea. And mm. so sometimes, sometimes ideas or translations, um, even though they're not correct, they, if you stop and look at them, they can make you think about what the, what those text as we have it is trying to say, they can make you look at the text in a different way. And that can be very illuminating on its own. So I don't think we need to be scared of, oh, well, there's another possibility. We need to look at why there might be a possibility and, you know, kind of weigh the the reasoning behind that and still honor what we have on the page, but still, you know, being open to the idea that, you know, humanity is involved. Mm-hmm. And sometimes things get changed because humans mess things up. And I've said this before, but, you know, in the Hebrew, when scribes were writing, if they corrected something, they, they put the correction and kept the mistake too. 
So, you know, we know there were mistakes. That That's not debated. That It's right there. Literally, if you buy a Hebrew um, Bible today in, in the Hebrew, you're going to find those passages. You can still see them. They're mm-hmm. still right there for you to witness. So you can see what's going on there. Nothing's hidden. And that's what I'm trying to get out of. But um, the ESV um, translates this, that this God, his way is perfect. Now, Alter says this God, his way is blameless. And that connects us back to those previous, you know, with the blameless God will show himself to be blameless. Uh, and having this, this in his mind, you know, it, when David has his mind illuminated by God, he begins to grasp how and why God is blameless. And if we have accepted this, um, this idea that God is blameless before on the premise of faith, now he's saying, he's explaining why. Uh, it, it's, he's not just accepting on faith. This is not intellectual assent. This is this awe. You really are blameless. Um, you know, this is this flash of understanding of why and how God's ways are blameless in a whole new level. And anybody who studied the Bible for any length like the time, you know that you'll read, you know, you'll read a verse. You'll be familiar with the truth. You, you've got this uh, this intellectual understanding of some principle, and then there there's this moment, the, mm-hmm. this little flash of time when it goes past the brain, and it's like it clicks in. And it's just like, oh my goodness, it's so much greater than you expected it to be. And it's it's this epiphany kind of moment, you know, when lightning strikes me brain, for those of you who've watched Hook. Uh, you know, everything that's an apostrophe. You, <laughs> apostrophe, y'all, that's... Captain, there's a whole discussion. It's <laughs> 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 such a funny scene. We actually watched that not too long ago. It's pretty funny. It's fun. a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, the, you've got the you got this moment where, you know, everything David had believed and thought about God is true, but now it's not just true, it makes sense. And the and I know when I've had those moments in my own life, not only does it make sense, it's like it, there's this it couldn't be any other way. Of course, this is exactly how it has to be. That's the only way. I mean, and, and you just really get that sense of of how perfect God's ways are. And, you know, it's, it's a really great moment. It's very affirming for your faith when those, ha- when those moments happen. And, you know, and I think we need to hang on to those moments. And so, um, you know, he exclaims, God's word proves true. And this is validation for his faith. This is why he's continued to hang on to God, even in the midst of all these hard times that he's had. You know, all these years of, of suffering where he was the anointed king, but he wasn't the king and he was running from Saul. Uh, he had the opportunity to take the throne. He didn't. And so everything he he had just said, yeah, okay, this is the way God operates. This is how I'm supposed to do it. So I'm going to do it this way. I may not totally get it. Now in this moment, it's like he's vindicated for that faith. Because, you know, you, you've got to remember back, you know, Abishai was like, you know, let me kill him. This guy's saying something that's not true about you. I, let me kill Saul. Let me kill Shimmy. Abishai was always right there saying, hey, if what you're saying is true, then there's no reason I shouldn't kill him. And David's like, no, God's going to handle it. You know, you, you got to step back. Mm-hmm. And so now David's being vindicated for those times that he was doing things that people didn't understand around him. And so he can look at his life through this lens of uh, this new understanding and see how God has defended and protected him. And, 
those are wonderful moments. And, you know, I, I would think that if anything's going to make you write a psalm, that that would be a moment that would do it. So verse 32, or who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? So we, we see this, this simple declaration of accepted truth. Uh, David is making a theologically and culturally relevant statement. This is the God of Israel. This is the true God, the only real God with the power to enact his will. He's the only God who's able and will consistently keep his promises. And no other God can really make these claims in the ancient world. They just, they, they can't. They're, they, as we said before, they're too erratic. They're, they're just driven by emotion. They're driven by lust and desire and selfishness and greed, insecurities. Uh, you, you read through some of that mythology and you begin to see what a revelation of God's character really meant to these people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're a little too comfortable sometimes with our image of God. Uh, we, we, Grown up, a lot of us who grew up in church especially, you know that God is trustworthy, God is faithful, and we aren't thinking of it, um, you know, as something that's countercultural. We're not thinking about it as something that is wholly new. We're thinking of it as just an accepted fact. And, you know, this is, this is not what the culture that Israel was living in at the time. This is not what they came out of from Egypt. This is not what they went into in Canaan. This is completely different. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I you know, you, you kind of have to wonder how it felt for them to, to be able to make these claims, knowing that other people serve these gods, these gods who, who they had seen do things. I mean, you've got to go back and remember, you know, like Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate so many, you know, certain portion of the plagues. These gods were not powerless. Right. They they actually did things. And so the people believed not because they could respond in love, but out of fear. And so the this the idea of being able to come to God with lo- with love, with awe, with with you know, joy, oh my goodness, that this is this is a huge, huge change in the perception of what a God means, what it means to be a God. Mm-hmm. So, I I don't know. It just it's one of those things that every time I read another myth from the Ugaritic or read another myth from even Greek or Norse or you know even Cherokee, uh, it it really reminds me of what people had to be thinking at this point in time. Yeah, well, so, it, and that that's actually yeah talking about people actually serving those gods and seeing the power of these gods and things like that. It's really interesting uh, to me, you know, it's, uh, and this is something we've talked about before, but whenever we discount the supernatural worldview, when we discount the fact that there are other beings out there and that there is a spiritual battle going on, it's not a battle like we think of, like, we might lose, you know, it's, you know, we're mm-hmm. basically just clear in the field, but it's, you know, you're looking at, going into places where people are worshiping false gods and having to pay these high prices at times with these ex- extremely exotic rituals or extravagant mm-hmm. rituals, probably the better which word. Which may or may said not the wrong work. Word. Yeah, which may or may not work. And, and, you know, it's the gospel when you, when you, we take it to this intellectual thing, like, oh, there is only one God and he, he's the only one who has any power, which granted, he's the only one who has 
final power, power you know. <laughs> yeah. But it the gospel isn't really it's not so much good news if you're telling people that, you know, God wants to save you from his own wrath. It's like, right. no, God is coming to set you free from other gods. Um, <laughs> or if you tell someone, oh, you know, God's God's just here to clean up your mistakes, right? You know, that's that's <laughs> you you know, you can you you've made some bad choices and God God's here to fix them because you're a screw up. You know, that doesn't sound like quite as I mean, that I mean, that's decent news, but it's not <laughs> it's not the the good news like the gospel, you know. We're we're talking about, you know, God is God has gotten rid of the other oppressive little gods who think that they are worthy of worship. And well, and so and that's so when we talk about you know going into other countries, it's not just it's not like a matter of oh, we're just trying to rewrite someone's culture or anything like that. No, we're saying you you worship this god who's a false god who's oppressive mm-hmm. and we we want you to be free from them. So right. um that's yeah. And, little... and if you have a if you have a problem with the term, you know, god and other gods, you know, god is not the only spiritual force. There's other spiritual forces. So you can think of it in that terms. Because when we're talking about gods for anybody who might be just tuning in and I I doubt but I mean most people have followed us. The the thing is, we're not talking about other gods in the sense that there is some kind of beings out there who are equal to the God of the Bible. We're talking about beings that inhabit the spiritual realm and do have the ability to interact with the physical realm because God has allowed them to do so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and you, we we affirm this in so many ways within Christianity, and it's it's not a crazy thought. Um, you know, we talk about demons, we talk about angels, we talk about the host of heaven. So we already affirm them. Uh, I find that most people who have an issue with this are really trying have a problem with the verbiage mm-hmm. less than the concept. And so, if you can not have the knee jerk reaction against the verbiage and actually look at the concepts, you're going to find that it's very easy to confirm within scripture. So there are other spiritual entities out there, and they do have the ability to do things. I mean, that this is part of their free will. They 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 chose, and they chose poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, for another maybe a reference there. Well, yeah, um, I mean, well, and even even the the way we look at the word demon, I mean, there there's instances where it's been kind of uh, transliterated more or less from the the Greek daimon, mm-hmm. which is which which is basically a territorial deity. So right. even the own the the Bible's own verbiage um mm-hmm. recognizes these things exist. Well, and that's the thing. We 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 want to really stick with the Bible and not impose our you know, we come from a from a world that's, you know, scientifically based and if you can't measure it, you can't weigh it, then it it probably doesn't exist. Well, we know that's tr- not true. Right. Um, you know, that's kind of the basis for our faith is that things that we can't see are actually real. And so, uh, and you know, it's really funny to me. And uh, for anybody who wants more information on this, go and check out um, CRC with Doug Overmeyer. He's on the Raven Creek page. He's another one of our friends. Or uh, Answers to Giant Questions uh, with Tim Stedman and Chris, whose name I will remember, last name I will remember Chris one day. Bather. Bather, yes. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, Chris, um, but uh, I'm just really bad with names. 
but the the idea that these spiritual forces have are, are real is something that's very very central to our faith. And um, I forget even where I was going because I got stuck on Chris's name. Now maybe I'll remember it. But David, you know, David is living in a culture where these spiritual entities are are not just real. People are actively serving them. They're not just some kind of, um, you know, thing saved for, I don't know, ghost hunter show or something like that. There are deliberate attempts to make contact uh, to, with these deities, with these, these entities. And so David is getting to, to see, and you, we've got to remember too, David spent time in Moab. David spent time with the Philistines. David spent time in other cultures that were very much in active service to these other gods. So whenever we we hear David saying this, he's not saying this from a, a sheltered little church girl point of view where there's no, um, uh, there, he, he hasn't had any experience with this or he's just heard about this. He's actually witnessed this and that's where I was going to go with it. What's, what's interesting to me is when you start talking about, you stop talking God and Satan and demons and angels and you start talking ghosts, how many people actually will admit to having those kinds of experience that affirm the reality of a spiritual realm? And mm-hmm. it, it's people do it all the time. There wouldn't be a market for it on TV or on podcast or anywhere in books if people at some level didn't have these inexplicable uh, experiences that are by definition supernatural because there's no natural explanation for them. And so, um, you know, sometimes we need to stop acting all cool and above it all. So anyway, uh, so David, he's saying this about God, you know, and, and he, he's really celebrating the fact that God has kept him safe through this. And, you know, that he's also attributing his victories to God. It's not because David's a, a great warrior, not because David's a great politician. And we know these things are true. David is saying, Y'all guys don't understand if it hadn't been for God and God's, you know, direct intervention on my behalf, none of this would have happened. And mm-hmm. so David is giving the glory right back to the one who actually deserves the glory for making sure what his word was fulfilled. And that's what all of the psalm is about. When you really want to boil it down, this is David celebrating God being true to his character. And Honestly, that's that's what we all can celebrate. That's where we can all find hope. God is always true to his character. And there's no division between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And we're going to talk more about that later because that's significant. And I think we do a disservice um, to ourselves, to the Bible, to God, when we start trying to divide him between the mean old, mean old Old Testament God and the, the, the nice, sweet New Testament God. Um, that's... And whether we use those terms or not, if we're making that distinction in any way, that's what we're doing. Yep. So anyway, uh, this God is my refuge, my strong refuge, and has made me my way blameless. Now, how to translate this verse is a matter of debate because there's some confusion with the verbs. And so we want to acknowledge that. Uh, Art Scroll translates it. The God, exclamation point, my fortress of strength. He cleared my way with perfection. 
The Net Bible um, translates that the one true God is my mighty refuge. He removes obstacles in my way. So, you know, the, the basic three ways to translate this is David's way is blameless, which was problematic. But I think we kind of covered why it's really not as problematic as it might seem when we went through uh, verses 21 through 25. So refer back to that. Um, the second way is that God is blameless. Therefore, God's ways are blameless. And, you know, that's actually, that's a good translation. It makes sense. It's consistent with what we see in other Psalms. Uh, if you want to look some of those up, one's eight, uh, Psalm 18 and one's Psalm 32. Very similar wording, but not quite. Um, the third way is God has perfectly made a way for David. Uh, so it's less about God's character and more about his methodology. The way God does something is perfect. Now, all three translations work, and they work within the context of the psalm. They work with the the, the Hebrew, the the verbs, and all the tenses. And I, I'm not going to to go into all the grammar and what have you. I mean, really, that's just fodder for academics, and I don't want to uh, don't want to uh, bore anyone. But the reason why all of them work is because we we do have David declaring his righteousness, and that God has rewarded him according to David's own cleanness. Uh, and we know that God is blameless. Uh, that that's not even a point for debate uh, for believers. I don't think. And the third reason why it works is God's ways are perfect. So, you know, all three statements are true, and there's really no falsehood to be re- refuted in any of these translations. So we just want to get as close to accurate as we can. But in this case, where you have three possibilities that all have a certain level of validity based on the grammar and the context, um, you know, that we ha- just have to, to accept that maybe there's a little murkiness here. But maybe, just just maybe, the 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 fact that it's not clear is, is a way to encourage us to to embrace all the ideas presented. I just a thought. I mean, I I don't know why it's not one hundred percent clear, but I do know that no matter which route you choose, you're going to get to the right place. So, verse thirty four, he has made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure in the heights. So David makes a shift. Okay. This is a dramatic shift. He's no longer sh- seeking refuge before this. The whole Psalm was about David finding safety and security in the presence of God. God's his rock. God's his shield. God's his a strong refuge. Um, now he's not hiding. He's on the attack. And the, the descriptions here are both literal and poetic. Uh, these are the words of a warrior. It's one who, who knows battle terminology. I mean, he, he knows what it's like to be in a war. He's using the proper terms. He's talking about the logistics and the consequences, and um, but he he mixes this practical knowledge with metaphors and similes to reveal how the spiritual battle is being accomplished. And David's battles, you've got to remember, yes, he obviously had battles with flesh and blood when we just got through talking about David's mighty men just right before the psalm, where there were real battles with the Philistines, real battles with other giants. David knew what it was like to be on that battlefield. But in the psalm, he has also told us and very vividly described for us that this isn't just a physical reality. This is a spiritual war. war. He has presented this as a cosmic battle where God is engaging those powers of darkness, intelligent evil, and he's doing it on David's behalf. 
And so we've got we've got this declaration that both things are true. Both realms impact each other. They interplay. And so this is why David needs God's blessing. He needs God's protection. He needs God's guidance through this. Because if he doesn't have this, then how in the world is a human being actually going to be victorious in a spiritual battle? And I, I think it's easy to forget that the conquest of Israel and David's ascent to the throne really is a spiritual battle with spiritual consequences. And it's not just for Israel, it was for us. You know, the, these battles weren't fought just so David could have a nice house on a hill. The, this, these battles were fought so that the Messiah could come through the nation of Israel to redeem all of humanity. And if you don't think intelligent evil want, wanted to stop that, then you're missing the point of the Bible. Because this is about God's desire to be with humanity and all that he has done to reach us, the battles he's fought to, to be able to be here, to, to have been present in the person and form of Jesus Christ in the midst of humanity so that we may all one day be with him. And so we've got to to recognize, if we, if we fully want to appreciate what David is saying, we've got to recognize that this is a spiritual struggle, and the powers of darkness wanted to destroy Israel as a nation, David as a person, and the people of Israel. I mean, they, want, they even want the land, because without the land, without God fulfilling the promise to give the land to, to Abraham, then God is going to be shown ineffective. He's not going to be able to fulfill those promises. So the conquest of the land, David's ascent to his throne, is all a way of God pushing back the the enemy that would destroy any methods or means that God decided to, to implement to save humanity. Because these are enemies of God. And what, what the enemies of God do? They come to kill, steal, and destroy. And that was just as true back then as it is today. And, you know, I kind of think in some ways there was an advantage to these Old Testament enemies that were sponsored or empowered by this intelligent evil because you actually had an enemy you could see to fight. Uh, now we're, mm-hmm. we're having to deal with strictly the spiritual side of it. And I think that might take a little bit more self-control, actually. But <laughs> that's just me. But we, right. we <laughs> <laughs> you know, give me a target. I mean, seriously, give me a target. I, I know what to do with those. So, um, you know, the fact that, that we have violence in the Old Testament isn't a statement about God's violence just for violence sake. This is how God meets violence and, and does what David actually described earlier. You know, to the perverse, God seems torturous. And mm-hmm. so... David has said that this this is basically violence meeting violence in an effort to stop violence. And you know, and if you can kind of think about, you know, that that imagery where maybe a kid falls into a zoo enclosure, um I just realized there is actually that story that was in the news not too long ago. How do you stop a wild beast from mauling your child? You, you don't just talk it down. You don't try to reason with it. You, you, you put it down. Right. A- and, you know, that's, that's not being cruel. That, that's being kind to your child. And when you realize the level of hate 
that these spiritual forces, these dark spiritual forces have for humanity, then we aren't talking about something kind of sort of good or people who, who were, you know, just misled. These are people who are determined to reject God. If you're mm-hmm. fighting against Israel, if you're in the land, if you are, you know, one of the things you do is you, you learn about your enemy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that the people in Canaan knew about their enemy. Why? Rahab says, hey, we heard. Get me out of the city before you guys attack because we know. So this isn't like they're operating in ignorance. And then we've got, you know, the Gibeonites, we talked about them. Israel shows up and they, they go so far out of the way to develop this, this, uh, this deception in order to make sure that they're safe. Why? Because they knew the truth. And so, you know, when we talk about violence, we're talking about people who have chosen to align themselves and to be the weapon in the hands of these spiritual war, uh, spiritual entities that want to destroy. And so um, this is what David's talking about fighting against. He sees himself as empowered to, to re, you know, regain his footing and to once again attack and, and to attack more swiftly in the face of danger. And the heights here, maybe not literal heights. Uh, we know that this is a metaphor that David would have been very familiar with. Why? Because he fled from Saul. Where was he fleeing from Saul? He was in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so David is inverting this place of shame, that, um, of defeat that he had experienced with with Saul where he had been you know kind of humiliated because here he was God's chosen and he he's he's been on the run and he's been in the mountains to, because he doesn't have the power or the backing yet to to take from Saul what belongs from him and now he's saying it's a it's a place of victory the heights are no longer a place where you seek refuge from the enemy because you know you're a coward or or unable to defend yourself it's the place where one celebrates their victory so, verse 26, and he, speaking of God, trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Now, the, the theme of God's training people for war, very, very prevalent in ancient literature. Uh, they equip humanity with supernatural weapons. They provide strategies. Uh, they guide them to their enemy's weakness. I mean, probably the most famous and familiar version of this um, is the Battle of Troy. It's the basis for the Iliad, where mm-hmm. you know the, each of the Olympian gods, you know, they choose a human and they say, "Hey, you're going to wage war on my behalf. You're going to fight on my behalf, and I'm going to give you these these methods and means in order to have victory." And uh, that that's actually a really interesting story because it, it it shows how the gods turn on themselves and they basically you know destroy their their nice little paradise in Olympus by being unable to to get along. But they don't fight each other directly; they fight each other by using humanity as pawns. Now, is this you know truth? I I don't know that it's necessarily truth, but there's something that happened in the human consciousness that made people believe that this could be true. And I think we need to um, we need to acknowledge that we also see it in Enoch, the book of Enoch, where we have the angels actually the the watchers, the the sons of God, uh, those same beings that we encounter um, in Genesis six, where they equip people for war. Why do they equip people for war? Why do they give them weapons? Because they want us to kill each other. Mm-hmm. It, you know? because, because they because they know. I mean, it's. It's the 
idea of image. You know, it's it's the the sympathetic magic thing. You you destroy something that looks like what you want to destroy in order to damage it. And mm-hmm. we're God's image. I mean, it's and it doesn't damage God, but it grieves him. And because right. the, because they can't you know attack God directly mm-hmm. or if there's they know it's futile, they attack us. They they attack God in effigy in essence. Yeah. And yeah. And so, which is interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way, but in, you know, most monarchies, if you did something with the effigy of a king, that was grounds to be executed. Mm-hmm. I, so humanity has even said, this is the right standard. And so um, there, there's a really interesting parallel there. Now, another shared theme, since we, I brought up the Iliad, with um, Odysseus and, you know, all of his uh, great things is Odysseus actually proves his identity by stringing his bow. It was a bow that was supposed to be supernatural in origin. Uh, Now, his bow was made out of horn. It was not made out of uh, bronze. We do have metal bows, various metal bows in different mythologies. Um, Since we're on the Greek theme, one of them would be Apollo had a golden bow. But they do seem to be relegated to gods and goddesses, not humanity. Human beings didn't have these metal bows. And now we have at least one bronze bow that was found in Assyria. Um, we Archaeologists have disca- discovered it, but they've said no human being is going to be able to string this, let alone use it. And so it was nothing more than... a. Uh, a ritual symbol uh, it's a status symbol mm-hmm. and it it's it's this idea that if you have this kind of fancy bow you're saying i am the king i i am the one that um that deserves to rule and so it's also in david's case as the king we, we go back to that that kingly language where the king is that image of god that that visible um symbol of god ruling now if David has a bronze bow, what's this tell you about him? What's he saying about himself? That he really is functioning as God's um, representative here on earth. And I think it would be really interesting to do a, a further study of this bronze bow uh, within different mythologies. But um, I, I'm, I, I will leave that to someone. There's somebody, a good uh, doctoral th- uh, dissertation topic. Uh, but. You know, the fact that David's saying he can bend a, br- a bow that no human being can bend mm-hmm. with God's help, it is, it's a staggering statement. And I don't think we often think about the fact that you cannot bend a, bar- a bronze bow. Right. And, you know, I, I've done some work with bronze. I've done some rods ca- casting. It, it's when you really think about what that means, it, it's just mind boggling that you would think that anyone would even bother to make a bow out of bronze. and so. I really do. I think what David is saying here, he's the rightful king of Israel. Many cultures in the ancient Near East, uh, they portray their kings with bows. Uh, and again, that's that idea that they, they're the rightful king. Why? Because they're a mighty warrior. They have the ability to win battles. This is how they ascended to be king if they weren't a descendant of the king. Uh, I think he's also trying to say that God has empowered him. I mean, this whole psalm has been dedicated to what God has done on David's behalf. And so... Um, I think that you know David's kind of taking that imagery, and we've already seen him do that uh, 
previously in the psalm where he's taking that imagery that people know where a god does supernaturally equip a warrior with this supernatural weapon. Uh, I think David's picking up on that. Um, and I also wonder if it might be a, stasis, a statement of theosis. And uh, you know, theosis is this um, very interesting concept where we attain uh, through this, this transitional transformation, uh, transformative process the attributes of quality of God. We're, we're not becoming God, but we, we become more like God. And if you want to know more on that, uh, I'm going to leave that to an expert, Joshua Sherman, Tending Our Nets. He, he just wrapped up a series on that. Go check it out. He goes into different views and he talks about uh, how it's been approached throughout the ages. So um, you don't, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because Joshua just did such a great job. But, and his, for anyone who hasn't checked his stuff out, what, it's normally seven to 10 minutes yeah, it's a, it's a really short podcast, and he does that on purpose because he wants people to get some of the stuff in some really easy bite-sized chunks that, you know, like for us, we're, we're talking about stuff for an hour, and we've got all kinds of things that we're, <laughs> we, tangents we go off on, and Josh, uh, he's pretty focused. Um, <laughs> so so. <laughs> if, you, if you need something like that, you know, to fill in some time, or you just want to learn more, because even though it's small bites, it's, it's good bites, mm-hmm. and so they're meaty bites. Um, so anyhow, uh, go check that out. You can find him at Raven Creek, socialclub.com. So anyway, SC.com. SC. Oh yeah. You handle the technical stuff. Okay. Anyway, but (laughs) we've already seen how, how David has characterized this entire battle, this entire struggle. It's a spiritual battle and it requires that supernatural intervention, that supernatural aid. And if he's going to, to win. And God not only supplies it, he supplies it dramatically. He supplies it willingly. He, he's highly responsive. And, you know, I, I really, that's an amazing statement. And it's, you know, we totally kind of expect this from David. I mean, his whole life has been nothing but one divine intervention after another, whether it's for empowerment, it's for ability, it's or correction. God has been right there with David. And then when you realize that David's, you know, he said these words and he's, he's made these statements about himself, but then these become the words that are sung over and by entire congregations. That's just nuts. Because now it, we're saying it's true for all of us. Everyone who is created in God's image, who is a child of, of the Lord, this is true for you and me. And, you know, and I don't think we should, we should miss that. So verse 36, you have given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. So, you know, this is echoes uh, in Paul's armor of God in Ephesians six, Paul has a shield of faith. Um, but, and so there's a little difference, but there's a shared imagery that these, these elements, these attributes become actually weapons in the hands of God's people. And they become, you know, these utensils of war. And um, this word here, uh, the shield of your salvation is Yasha. It's the the basis for the name of Jesus. And David is accrediting uh, God with the safety and protection um, through rescuing him through these attacks and and battles. And then we have this this rather uh, curious statement in the middle of, you know, this rather violent stanza. That says, and your gentleness made me great. 
So it's weird. So you know, you got to take some time. So I find the the translation here in the ESV gentleness kind of to be bizarre. I mean, it's not just weird. We 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 cross that boundary over into bizarre. Uh, the word is not typically translated as gentle or gentleness. Um, it, it's ought, and it typically um, ought is the word we usually tra- uh, translate as gentleness. And we find that word in Second Samuel eighteen fifty eighteen five, where David tells Joab to deal gently with the boy. He's talking about when Joab goes out after Absalom, and of course Joab um, doesn't doesn't listen. Here the um, the word is anah, and when the word anah appears in Samuel, it's usually translated very differently. And I wanted to look at a couple of verses where we we find that, so you can see um, see how it's used. So in Second Samuel thirteen twelve, it says, "She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me.' That's that word anon is is uh, violate, for such a thing is not done in Israel." So of course now we're with Tamar. And Amnon, mm-hmm. uh, we have it again in uh, verse thirteen, uh, verse fourteen, which says he violated her again. That same word. Then um, uh, several, two more times within that same that same chapter. That's that's tip. That's the only place where you find this word used outside of twenty two. So in so I went ahead and I looked forward into First Kings, which if you remember. First Kings and Second Kings are actually part of the same book. First and Second Samuel, First Second Kings, all one book, just divided this way because that's the average length of a scroll. But we find it in First Kings two twenty six, and the says this is Solomon speaking, and we'll get to the story. But it says, "And you have shared in my father's affliction." So the word is translated as affliction here. First uh, Kings eight thirty five. Turn from their sin when you afflict them. That the people will turn from their sins when you afflict them. First Kings eleven thirty nine. And I will afflict the offspring of David. So, you know, um, at first these two options. When you read it, you know your your violation, your your affliction made me great. Really doesn't seem to to work. Uh, it, it just it feels off, and. But I think the connection might be a little bit more apparent if we look at another translation of the word. Another translation of the word is to defile, to humble, humility. Uh, so what do we know <clears throat> Excuse me, about uh, God's humbleness or humility in regards to humanity? Well, flip on over to Philippians 2.5. Uh, 2, it says, have this mind among yourself, which is in the Christ Jesus, it, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though having the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born with the likeness of man, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so David is is catching glimmers of what's going to of what's going to um, happen in the life of Christ and happen in the life of God. God lowers himself, God humbles himself, and he, he actually kind of violates himself as far as, you know, his holiness to, to, to be a part of our experience. And David's saying this is already happening. This isn't something that's reserved for the New Testament. God has already 
come down because he heard David's cry. God's saying in the holy temple, he's heard David's cry. He's tilted the heavens of the earth. He's shaken the foundations of the heavens. Why? Because he will afflict himself by entering into the realm of humanity on our behalf. And of course, Jesus just takes us to the next level. Jesus actually becomes human so that he can intervene on our behalf. And um, I think there is this, this little moment where we see this, um, this foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do. And it's a hint of what Jesus is, is uh, going to accomplish that Paul's going to describe for us. And I think it's a good time to, you know, we need to remember the sacrificial nature of Jesus' life. And I mean, we spend a lot of time, and I've probably said this on the show before, we spend a lot of time on um, focusing on the, um, uh, on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But, and we talk about how sacrificial the death is. But when you talk about mm-hmm. this God that David's just described and all his grandeur and his holy and power and holiness and might actually coming down to spend time on earth to, to be among us with all of our flaws and all of our horrible things that we do and, and you know, just even being encased in a flesh suit. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. That, that's sacrificial. I mean, Jesus went for, through puberty. Tell me that's not sacrificial when we're talking about the God who created the, hum- the universe. I mean, right. that, we, we tend to discount the life. We tend to think that he should be so happy he's here on earth. If you think that he should be happy because he's here on earth, then you've missed the glory and grandeur of heaven. You've missed who he is, mm-hmm. you know, outside of, you know, the cute little baby in the manger. And so I, I, I think that's an important thing for us to remember because uh, for, for several reasons. One, we need to honor that and we need to celebrate that. And also it helps us when we're talking about marital relationships and creation, uh, because, uh, you know, if you're going to love uh, your wife like Christ loved the church, then you've got to live for your, mm-hmm. your wife. So it's not something that, oh, I'll just die for her. No, that's too easy. Got to live first. So, um, you know, David is revealing something profound. He, he's saying that God literally moved heaven and earth. And, and in doing so, God actually suffers for doing so, that entering into our, our reality, entering into this domain, cost God something, mm-hmm. because it, it's an affliction. It's a violation of his nature, and yet he endures it. Why? Well, Paul tells us later, except for the joy, you know, um, he endured it for the joy set before him on the cross. I mean, come on. We, we can, he endured the cross. Sorry, I'm butchering that verse. But we, we have that, that the fact that he, God's got the end game in mind, mm-hmm. and, and he, he's willing to do whatever it takes because that's how much he loves us. And that's what David is celebrating in the psalm. God loves us. God moves on our behalf because he loves us. And so this is why we can celebrate. And everything in here he's describing is an act of love. And, and we need to remember that because it's very easy to pick this apart and say, oh, well, there's violence and there's gore and there's, you know, the stuff that we've been told is not part of God's character or nature. But 
we got to remember this is being done to protect us from those enemies that want to kill, steal, and destroy. And the people who are allowing themselves to be used as weapons in the hands of that enemy. So, um, you know, David is, is telling us God has never been that cold, distant watchmaker who wound up the universe and stepped away. Mm. He's always been a part of the lives of the people who love him. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, the, the New Testament, yes, it's new and there, there's a different revelation of God. But it is, it, it's the, what the Bible's been building to since Eden. It, right. it's, not, it, it's not a break. It's not like God went, hey, wait, I got a great idea. Let's change track. It's like, no, this is what he always wanted. It is that relationship. It is that intimate knowledge of his creation. And then David takes it further and he says, by the way, when you align yourself with God, you can become great too. And you don't have to be king. Why? Because I'm going to put it in the psalm book where everybody can sing it. Mm-hmm. So the the word great here is arava, which is uh, the word we find in the binding of, of Isaac in Genesis 22. And God says, I will surely bless you and make, and surely I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sands are on the seashore, and your offspring will possess the... Um, the gates of the enemies. So the, the, the great, it's the multiply, the, 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 the overflow, the it's, you know, stars, the sky and the, the sea on the seashore. I mean, come on, this is, these are overwhelming numbers. And we got to remember the binding of Isaac is another time God showed up. Mm-hmm. And so David is kind of drawing us, our minds to those points in those places where God shows up specifically on the behalf of the one who needs to be saved. And, you know, David is saying that God's intervention through God's intervention, it's what allows him to be, to be greater than he ever could have been on his own. And so, you know, we have this, this really amazing imagery that we often we often overlook because we, you know we're told, well, God's with you, God, God loves you, and it, it, but it's a fierce love. It, it, it's not some pastel, precious moments love. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's the it's the crazy kind of love that would cause him to. I, I just love that imagery to tilt the heavens, to to come down, to to you know shake the foundations of heaven. Why? Mm-hmm. Because he loves us. And so if David can say that about the God of the Old Testament, David, who's a Jewish man under the bonds of the the Torah, can say this, then why aren't we celebrating God the same way as Christians and through the New Testament? And, you know, we've been set free from the law that David had to observe. We've we've been empowered and emboldened and given the Holy Spirit. So, uh, you know, if David can say this much, then I think we're just being lazy. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's just you know my personal opinion. Uh, so anyway, that's probably a good spot uh, to to stop, and we can pick up again. So we're still going to be in here a while longer, right? And uh, because uh, there's just a lot of good stuff, and I know I say that every week. There's a lot of good stuff, but you know we're studying the Bible, so yeah, you can't help it, it if you're studying the Bible. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, we'll we'll break there, and we'll pick up next week. Um, 
Everyone, in the meantime, be part of the conversation. Hit us up on ravencreeksc.com or ravencreeksc on all the social media, and we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.